Well, I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of Biking Brokers with your host, Miles Romney and Chris Merrill. So today we are uh, grateful to be joined by three rock stars in the benefit uh, employee or benefit uh, world, I guess you could say. And we are joined today with the partners of Diversified Insurance Group. They are uh, Brian Carter, Gina Hutchings, and Sean Oliver. So Diversified is one of the, the largest regional brokers in the West. And so we're super grateful to have them with us today. Uh, but as always, we want to start off with uh, hearing some biking stories, obviously. So we'll let the three of you go and we'll start with that. So Brian, what do you got? I know you've been on a few rides with us, uh, seen you in a sling once or twice. So I know you got something good. Well, I've got lots of biking stories, but um, I fell in love with bikes really young. So I can still remember that first bike that I got under the Christmas tree, how excited I was. Um, and, uh, I lived in a neighborhood where we had lots of older kids, but it was, um, you know, I wanted to go hang with the, with the older kids. And so I learned to ride my bike pretty quick so I could go ride around with the older kids, but the older kids weren't always so nice. Right. So they, they like to, uh, pick on, pick on the, pick on me specifically. <laughs> um, and, uh, so you know, I was trying to fit in and be cool. And, uh, so they convinced me one day and I, I'd learned to ride the bike decent, but I'm like five, six years old. And they convinced me that I could flip my bike all the way over and land on the wheels. If I got going as fast as I could and then crammed my foot into the fork. <laughs> this is YouTube gold right here. <laughs> I wish they'd videoed this. Yeah. But I, uh, I went for it and I, I decided, okay, let's see if I can flip this thing all the way over. I wasn't going to be, uh, not cool enough to hang with these kids. So I got going as fast as I could and crammed my foot under that fork. And, um, and I flipped over. I didn't quite make it all the way over back onto the wheels, but um, I had some road rash for a while to, to prove it. And I, they all laughed and, and rode off as fast as they could before, um, before somebody found out what they did. And this was a while back. So you probably didn't have a helmet on, right? It's oh yeah. There were no helmets back in the day. Right. Yeah. You couldn't get helmets back then. They just didn't exist. This is true. So that may be one of the better stories we've had in our, you know, illustrious career in this podcast. So funny uh, thing is, I ride a bike pretty regularly today, but I and I, I have some stories, but I can't top that one. No. <laughs> well, you could redo it. You could try again. Yeah. You know, Brian, if you get going really fast and you cram something in the fork, you flip right over and can land it. You try it. <laughs> Maybe I'll try that one day. Yeah. <laughs> so Sean, do you have any stories? And then we'll go to Gina. Uh, I have a couple stories. I have one from when I was a kid. I found $20 in the garbage can of the local Dairy Queen and used that to buy some sweet mag wheels for my uh, monster bike that I put together. But I'm, I've never been a big biker. Uh, for me, I love uh, I love as a means for exploring cities when I'm traveling in Europe. So Amsterdam, uh, my son and I jump on bikes and ride around and cover a lot more ground. So mine's not as funny, but um, yeah, I've ridden bikes in a lot of European country, uh, early European cities, and I find it's the best way to go. I, I saw Venice in four hours and was completely satisfied with my tour of Venice uh, via bike uh, in four hours. So go figure. Sounds like the way to see Venice. So oh, wait, no, not Venice, Vienna. Sorry, sorry, wrong city. We Vienna. wouldn't have known either way. You Venice know, Venice probably Vienna. not a good biking city. 
so, Venice. But. Yeah, yeah. Gina's like, no, Venice. I don't think you did a bike tour. I'm like, Venice. yeah, it took you four hours. I don't. Know. <laughs> it's a special yeah. water bike. All right, Gina, what do you got? Well, mine's not near as exciting as you know, as the other two. But when I was trying to think of when I felt really good on a bike, it made me think of. One of my first bike when I was young, and I grew up in a small town in Star Valley, Wyoming, and I had a big, um, just it was a blue, big bike, right? That was heavy and one of the it's old bikes, exactly like a cruiser, and it was so heavy though that I could balance it really well with my legs and not have my hands. So <laughs> I would go up to the top of the canyon, and I would just cruise down, no hands. And I just put my hands up in the air as I was just cruising down for a couple of miles. And I could just guide the whole thing with my legs the whole time. And it was just like the most freeing, refreshing kind of thing that, that when I was trying to think, when did I feel really good? That was one of the first things that came to my mind. And I still miss that bike, you know, because the ones now, we want them to be light so that they're not heavy for us to ride, all those kinds of things. So riding without hands isn't quite as easy. Confession, Gina, I still do that today. If there's a big enough hill with some asphalt, I'm still doing that today. So (laughs) my bike, I have not yet figured out how to ride for a couple of miles without hands. (laughs) I want to know how you got the beach cruiser up the hill a couple miles. Right. You were a strong kid. We're not talking like a a hill like going up little cottonwood or something right it was just enough that you didn't really have to pedal to come back down again right? got it so. <laughs> well thank you for those um and and we may have a bike only episode at some point and then we're bringing you all three back because i think there's some additional <laughs> stories here so um but we we want to kind of dive into our topic and so what we were hoping to talk about today is really your three's perspective on what 2021 looks like in regards to employee benefits. And we've identified some topics and we just wanna talk through those and see, um, because as far as the industry goes, I think you three have as much or more experience than anybody and insight. And so we value that and we look forward to, you know, the next 15, 20, 25 minutes. So um, let me just say, we've, we've broke it down to a couple of topics. We've got, uh, we think pharmacy is a big deal. Um, medical or carriers, what are they doing? Anything on a disease specific level? How are we educating our employees or how is technology changing how we interact? And then finally access to care. And so uh, this is unscripted, so we can move and flow between those. Um, But uh, I think let's start with Gina. Gina is the practice leader. She is the one who has been at Diversified the longest. And so calling me the oldest, which is okay. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. You never, Sean, I can call old. old. Gina, I would never call old. So, um, but uh, out of those topics, is there one that you're like, oh, I'd like to, this is something we've seen that we've identified for 2021 as being impactful in some way between those five? I guess when I think about, you know, I have been doing this for a long time. And as I think of the evolution, of where employee benefits have gone um, through the years. One thing that I know today is that we have changed funding methodologies in a dramatic way um, over the years from a traditional fully insured kind of plan to moving more to um, partially self-insured plans. And the reason why is that 
we want to make a difference. Healthcare is local. And between on-site clinics and between um, trying to get to the disease, the, to the chronic diseases, because chronic diseases are all self-management. And how do we give our employers better tools for their employees so that we can get to the core and try to prevent claims from becoming large claims? Because right now, healthcare in general is a game of large claims. Because the day-to-day -day claims costs aren't changing that dramatically. It's how do we change large claims and the trajectory of those large claims? And how do we finance that in a way that doesn't put an employer at risk? Um, and so I think that as we've been able to, to create plans where we have more a la carte resources, so we're, we're gonna tip away at lots of different areas and I'll let my other two, the other two to go into some of those areas that we're going, we have to get best in class in all of the areas so that we can change healthcare one employer at a time. What does that look like when it comes to the size of companies though? Well, we actually are able to do that in groups above 50, um, 50 employees on the plan and we can do it under 50, it's, it's more difficult, but definitely we have been able to bring it down to a group size that we would have never done before. Brian, you were gonna add in something there. What were you gonna say? Yeah, so as Jean is talking about, you know, pulling in those creative solutions and, and finding different areas to be able to um, attack those, those claims that we're seeing inside a group, I think that's where we're seeing the most innovation right now in healthcare. I mean, it's rarely a day that you don't see an article or a new comp about a new company that's popped up that um, is, is focused on treating this one particular condition or better managing this disease or, you know, they've got a new product that does this. But if you look at it, they all seem so fragmented, right? And that they're all na very niche companies that are just uh, attacking one particular disease or problem. And I think that can be great in that if you look at, um, you know, being able to truly change and, and, and affect a particular disease, I think it's important that you have somebody that's really focused on that, but it becomes really hard for a health plan in that if you've got a whole bunch of different pieces and you say, okay, for our diabetics, we're doing this. And there's been a lot of companies in the news in the last few years that have popped up doing creative things with diabetes. I mean, you look at like a Livongo and where they started and where they are today um, in, in being acquired for huge dollars, right? And, um, and other companies that are in that same uh, path that are focused on a particular disease and making a difference. Um, again, it's hard for a health plan to, to bundle all of those. Um, and so you see, you know, on these full, fully insured plans, carriers aren't pulling in all of these solutions, but on the self-funded side, you can. Um, and we're seeing carriers finally realize, okay, we've got to figure out a different way to pull all these solutions in. And if you're looking at the upcoming solutions that we're seeing, like you look at, a United or a Blue Cross, they're two big initiatives right now that we're seeing are finding ways to package all these different point solutions so that it feels like a little more seamless product. Um, you know, you look at the accolades and the quantums, two companies that we've done a lot of business with in the last couple of years. That's the 
biggest thing that I think they're making a difference in is that they're finding ways to bring all of these different healthcare innovations together in one platform. Um, and so as Gene is talking about self-funding, I think that's the part I get most excited about is pulling all of these innovations into one and being able to find the thing that fits your needs as a group um, rather than that one-size-fits-all approach that you get with fully insured. And so, then using data, and that's where Sean comes in, right, to, for outcome-driven stuff. Yeah, and I was just going to comment, and I'll circle back to that, but I was just going to comment, um, you know, while, while we often view these uh, companies that are disease-specific that are popping up uh, to be uh, cost um, containment strategies and goals of, of controlling costs, I think that a lot of employer groups uh, in the tight labor market are viewing these more as sort of curating the experience that members have when they uh, when they engage with the healthcare system with one of these conditions, whether it be a maternity or whether it be a diabetes or whether it's, um, you know, physical therapy, uh, all of those things, they're sort of wanting to curate the experience, experience and ensure that the members have a more seamless experience than maybe historically through uh, the healthcare system in America. So, uh, you know, we look at it from both a financial perspective, but also the perspective of the employee's experience when they when they engage with the healthcare system. And in terms of data, yeah, um, you know, that's going to be with all of these these products and vendors that are emerging, which continues, as Brian said, seems like every day there's a new one. Uh, you know, it's our job to, to vet those and ensure that there's a need there from a financial perspective um, and that there's a solution that uh, benefits both the employer and plan sponsor as well as the employees and that everybody benefits and wins from, from the technology and the, the, the solution. So I want to circle back to the employee experience that you brought up, Sean. Um, <coughs> excuse me, Gina, do you have some comments regarding employee experience and what are you hearing from your clients as far as, all right, we want to do something different for our employees and how does that employee experience, what are we doing to help facilitate, how do we do something different for our employees from the experience side? There's no doubt that in the country, we have created a healthcare system that is super complicated, that is super difficult to maneuver. And so I think that we're hearing an overall arching cry for, okay, we need to provide resources and tools to be able to help members make better healthcare decisions and have the support that they need. And so what we're trying to do is provide those solutions. And there are some great um, some great companies out there as well as what we're doing internally to educate and give people tools. They wanna be able to save money. They wanna be, have better quality. Um, and they just didn't know where to start. And so bringing that to the forefront is not only gonna create a better member experience, it's gonna save money because people make better decisions when they have tools to be able to do that. So Sean mentioned cost containment and Gina's talking about these tools to give employees some education. Um, Sean or Brian, do you have, let's dive in a little more into the cost containment and these tools. And I, I, what I want you to address is that it's not just cost containment and talk about how we can save money by giving people the right information that is not just about, we're looking for the cheapest way to source a service. 
I think um, as you look at trying to navigate healthcare, I mean, there's probably nothing that we purchase that's anywhere near as complex as healthcare. And trying to find information um, around care um, is, isn't difficult in that there's so much information available, but it's difficult to figure out where's the right place to go for that information. There's a lot of differing opinions and, and there's that pushback from, you know, healthcare providers is the people that diagnose themselves on Google. And yet, you know, you go to a healthcare provider and yet you see wildly differing opinions from one provider to the next. Um, I know I've experienced that myself, right? Where, you go to one provider and this is the next step that they think you should take and you go to a different one and, and it's a, a very different opinion um, and even in the way they approach it. So um, I think it's finding better ways to help point people in the right place. And the cost savings comes from eliminating waste inside the system, right? If we can, rather than having people have to navigate their way through those differing opinions, you know, both through what they're reading online and the various opinions from providers and give them good, solid information up front or help them navigate. Here's the best place you should go for that next opinion um, that we, we eliminate a lot of that, that waste. And so it becomes both a better experience for the member and cost savings all at the same time, if we can point them in the right direction. And if you look at historically, the healthcare system has been driven by the office visit, right? A brick and mortar visit that someone can bill for, for providing medical advice or medical services. And that is sort of changing, um, it, you know, began a few years ago and continues to trend and, and the trajectory seems to be continuing upward is that, that a visit, at least a brick and mortar visit is no longer an essential component in, in the healthcare path, right? You know, you have Teladoc, which has seen astronomical increase. I wish I'd bought Teladoc in January of last year, right? Uh, bought stock in that. But, um, you know, you have Teladoc and you have these other services that are bringing, bringing traditionally in-person brick and mortar visits to the members uh, more conveniently, whether that's through, you know, a teleconference or, a, a, you know, video training or whatever it might be, but all sorts of different ways to improve the member experience, control the costs, and just fundamentally change the delivery method. But in the end though, primary care is, we, we need to continue to have a renewed emphasis in primary care because there is value in having one physician coordinate all of your care and know everything about you. Because in the fragmented system that we live in, I think that we need to continue, and we've done a lot with onsite clinics that have made a huge difference because what happens is that rather than get that seven minute visit that Sean's referring to that hasn't necessarily brought value, we are trying to create a world where people can really get value from primary care and, and different methods to do that. So I think we need to continue to have a renewed emphasis in primary care. It's got to be different primary care than it is today, right? right? In that primary care as it is today, I mean, you talk about this, I mean, it sort of seems like a pie in the sky vision of a healthcare provider that knows all of um, everything that's going on with you and helping manage that. And the reality is it's been a long time since I felt like um, I've seen a provider manage all of your healthcare, right? Whether it's primary care or otherwise in that it's become a thing where, they don't have the time to be involved in your big healthcare picture. It's more, we've 
paid primary care to treat the symptoms that you've got today and get you back out there. Um, and that's what we expect too, right? You go to this primary care provider and you expect, okay, I'm troubled with this particular um, problem today and I'm hoping to either walk away with a solution or a prescription, right? And so that's what they, they've geared themselves around. And if we can get that to where primary care is actually managing um, the whole patient and helping figure out that vision for the future of how do we help this person be um, more well overall and um, plan for that um, picture of health in the future or, or how do we move them to a better place in the health spectrum um, in the future, um, that that will change healthcare. And I'm, I'm right there with you, Gina. I think primary care is the place that that happens, but it, it's going to take a, a to pretty happen. revolutionary move. And, and what we have to do is align incentives, right? Because that's what you're talking about. The primary care physicians haven't had the incentive to invest in preventive care in taking the time to try and change the trajectory of the health of that member because they're getting paid to turn clients and to go, you know, their members, their patients, you get seven minutes with somebody, bum, bum, bum. And in these bigger systems, they're not incentivized. If something's complicated, you're sending it to a specialist or sending it to get bunches of tests done because you're not paid to take that extra time. You can't get, you can't make money. So it's an inherent system change to make that happen. It definitely sounds like there's a lot of things inside of there that can be streamlined or fixed, but it's just kind of the education on that side. But kind of looking you know, forward on top of that, looking at the data from the past years and kind of looking to 2021, what are some of the other kind of low hanging fruit that you guys see from, or what the data is telling you, you know, whether it's, you know, other types of disease management or pharmacy or anything like that. We're doing some really innovative things with pharmacy because heaven knows these specialty meds, which are life-changing, right? When you look at some of the disease states, and if you have arthritis or MS or some of these um, diseases, there are drugs now that are changing the, the, the future of your disease. But guess what? They're so expensive. And so we, we have been really looking for creative ways to try and fund those medications um, and, and have been very successful in, in reducing some, some dramatic, dramatically reducing some costs of those medications for employers and employees. So Brian, you were about to say something? Yeah, I mean, I think pharmacy has to be the front of every discussion, right? And that right now that's where costs are really increasing. And we're seeing some movement on that front to try and address that. Um, but as you look at the legislative side of things, um, I think that's an area that has to get more attention. And it seems like every effort stalled um, of late um, to, to, to try and um, provide solutions or regulations that, that um, uh, will, will change the way pharmacy works. Um, prices continue to go, go up. And I love that we're seeing continue to see huge innovation in pharmacy but uh, at, at a cost that's unsustainable, right? And so we've got to figure out a way to reward companies for innovation while at the same time um, changing the incentives to lie to, to keep um, drug costs high for the long term. And you see, you know, those little changes that maintain a name brand status 
for, for many, many years after it was intended to be, you know, a name brand and keep them out of that generic, generic market. Um, and then specialty meds, if we can find a way to uh, pool the development costs of specialty in a different way. Um, but that's, that's where the changes have to occur. Um, from an individual company perspective, I think companies can do more um, to manage the, the cost of pharmacy. Um, and I feel like a lot of companies have thrown their hands in the air, but there are solutions out there, right? And so, you know, some of the things we're doing and trying to remove some of those costs from the plan and from the employees, you know, are, are truly making a difference where we can see, you know, a company that is actively involved in managing their pharmacy paying half what uh, a company that is just going with the flow and taking what the insurance companies um, providing them from a pharmacy benefit management perspective. And so there's more that can be done. And uh, I think we continue to lead on that front and, and, uh, and, and we'll continue to drive that effort this year. Yeah. And as Brian said, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies are always going to be working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to protect their, their profits and to protect their interests. And so, while we certainly, at an individual company uh, base, company basis as well as a, a firm basis, it's hard to keep up with that. Um, we can chip it away at it, and we can certainly find um, for those groups that are willing to be innovative and look outside the box and and um, you know be a little disruptive. There's there's huge dollars to be saved there, uh, and that will fluctuate over time and it will it'll evolve. But as long as we're constantly looking at it, I think we can find successes for our groups. You know, it's interesting. I have people ask me all the time since Ed, since we've been in this business for a while, you know, what's the one thing that we could do to change healthcare? And, and I consistently say there's no silver bullet that's going to change healthcare, but we have to chip at it because there are so many levers in this complicated system that we have to chip at every single layer and every single level. And that's the way we have an overall cost that we can make huge differences in the cost of healthcare. When we look at some of our clients that have now gone five years without increasing their budget rates, the, you know, when you're self-insured, that would be like your premium equivalents, then that's like huge. I mean, when everybody else is increasing 10% a year, think to how that falls to your bottom line. I mean, talking about revenues and all those things, I mean, it, it really can make a huge difference. So... No, no, and I appreciate. Oh, go, Brian. I'm say just from a political side of things, I don't. I don't want to get into politics too much, but I do feel like, um, as we look at healthcare solutions that are being proposed from the legislative side, that we've become so divided as a country that it's really difficult to get any good ideas through because the other side wants to tear it down, right? And either side, and I, I I'm, I, I'm not pointing to one side or the other. It, it happens on both sides. But if you look at um, the transparency regulations um, that recently were upheld. Um, so the Trump administration had um, you know, mandated that hospitals disclose the prices that they're negotiating um, with insurers and cash prices um, to, um, to, the, to the general public, right? So the, essentially a, a price list being published, which is an unheard of thing in healthcare, right? I mean, it's the, just about the only place that you go and you, you don't have any idea what you're actually going to pay for a service. And certainly there were uh, there was a lot of pushback, um, but the um, uh, appeals court um, just in um, in December 
um, rule to keep it effective. So it's it's effective um, right now um, as far as the re- requirement um, or that legislation uh, is effective, but it, it starts to phase in in January of 2022. So it'll be interesting to see what changes between now and a year from now. But I think that could have a pretty profound effect on a lot of pieces of healthcare in that if you look at, especially here in Utah, our divided system um, from a hospital network where you've got the Intermountain Healthcare and everybody else, right? And that divided system makes healthcare more complicated here in Utah. But also, um, I think it will uh, force a, a level of competition um, that doesn't doesn't exist today, um, and maybe an even more level playing field for for smaller players or or new innovations to occur if um, if we can all have that access to what costs really are. Um, and so I'm really excited to see what that, um, what that does over the upcoming year and how that uh, changes healthcare. I um, am concerned that because, um, you know, it was a mostly one party solution, right? That um, now the other party will come in and, and water it down to the point that it, it's, uh, it doesn't mean anything. Um, but if they don't, it could be, you know, an interesting year as, as hospitals and systems prepare um, to do that and insurance companies, right? I mean, it's going to uh, really affect insurance companies and the way their networks are built and the way we value insurance companies. Today, uh, you look at what companies use as their decision um, as to what carrier they're using. And there's a few things, right? But it seems like price is always number one. Um, and then network number two, and maybe customer service number three. And, um, you know, certainly if we could remove that, um, a, a big portion of that network discussion or, and, and then affect price by letting everybody see what everybody's paying. Um, you know, it, it's going to really change how consumers and employers are buying healthcare um, going forward. I completely agree, Brian. Great points. Brian Carter for uh, Senate house. What, what are we looking at here? You got my vote, Brian. <laughs> yeah. well, too, too big of a mess. I, I, uh, I'll, I'll speak actively out on, on my beliefs, but uh, I'm not sure I want to be a, be a part of the mess that, that is politics right now. Totally understand. But I kind of wanted to circle back to something you said earlier, Sean. So as, as you guys are talking about making disruption, right? So changing a formulary, bringing in a new partner, bringing in a new program, you know, there's potential disruption for the employee base. So how do you guys see as a way to be able to educate or to be able to get the employees on board with some of these changes? Because some, like you said, Sean, some of them are going to be outside of the box or might be a little bit different than what they're used to. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and that's always the struggle, right? Because often these cost containment programs, um, you know, if done improperly, can fall on the backs of the employees through cost shifting. And that's not what we're trying to talk about here is cost shifting necessarily. We're trying to talk about finding efficiencies, finding better cost, um, you know, protocols. And and so, uh, you know, but there are times when, when um, some, some thinking outside the box and being disruptive can appear as if it's moving and shifting that onto the employees. And that's where just strong communication, um, some using some of these vendors, like Brian mentioned, Accolade and Quantum, that are going to get high engagement and high interaction with the members is important. Um, and then just explaining, um, you know, to the members and employees that, um, you know, that, 
essentially they're all in this together, right? Both as plan sponsors and users of the plan and trying to find ways that, that um, and communicate with them and get them on board um, so that they utilize those dollars more effectively and that they're on board for programs that utilize those more effectively. So it's a cultural shift uh, and, and a communication project for sure. Nobody wants to have to think about their health care or ever get pushed back on their health care, right? You want it to be available to you when you need it and, um, and you don't want somebody else to have any opinion on how it should be done. And I think that mentality has to shift a little bit. Not that we need to have a whole bunch of people involved in our health care, but we need to be more involved in our health care as individuals. And so, um, you know, having a, a third party solution that says, you know, let us help you better manage your condition. And we're going to be there alongside you to help you make the best decisions. Just engage us and involve us. Or, you know, in order to get this care, there's some hoops that you've got to jump through first. Um, to get this care, to make sure that you're getting it at the best place and the best price and at the right time, you know, all those things um, for the care that you need today. And, and I, again, I think there has to be a little bit of a shift in the mentality that um, it isn't always going to be um, something we can take a hands-off approach and just go uh, get the, the care or spend the money in the health care that we, um, we want to today, but rather there's going to there's going to be some guidance along the way. And we, we're going to ask you to be involved in that, in that process. And again, we can't make it too onerous. Right. And we understand that. Um, and, but there's got to be a middle ground where there's some involvement. So just to kind of wrap up, um, thank you first to the three of you. We genuinely appreciate the time. Um, I'm going to speak for miles and I, we, we appreciate being part of diversified um, as you guys have talked about the innovation and, and the things that are happening and what we're doing as a brokerage and what you see in the industry. Um, I'm, you know, I'm frankly proud to be a part of it. Um, but in wrapping up, <clears throat> you, you brought up some ideas and I'm going to make a sum up and then you guys kind of just let's wrap up. But uh, it sounds like the biggest thing, if we take all of these things together is we've got to get the employer, the employee and the healthcare system and the providers all more engaged than they currently are. Is, is kind of what it sounds like in a very brief summation of it all. Um, is there any one thing, and, and I know that's hard, um, that you want to add in regarding how do we get these people more engaged? Um, you know, kind of what is a final thought along those lines? Because it sounds like engagement across the spectrum is what's going to really make healthcare better, um, better, cheaper. I mean, our philosophy is that we want to make it a better experience, easier to understand and more affordable. And so, um, so just in closing, is there any kind of sum up you want to have um, final thoughts as we wrap up? I think, I think it just kind of wraps around to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is giving them, giving them the members, the ultimate utilizers of the system, more tools, whether that be price transparency tools, um, you know, you know, uh, tools for connecting with doctors and, and other providers, just giving them ways to engage with the healthcare system that, that it meets them where they're at more simply. So go ahead, Brian. And I think it's a resetting of expectations, right? Across all of those platforms, right? And um, I think as an employer group, um, the biggest movement you can make is helping change those expectations some with your, with your members. As you put tools in place to help them make better decisions, um, there's got to be some communication and education around um, 
why you're doing what you're doing and how it can really benefit them to be more engaged in their healthcare. Um, and you know, that these tools are truly to help uh, a better experience overall. And it's not just a, um, a barrier to care, but rather, you know, if we can all engage more than we are today, that we'll all have better outcomes. Um, and if that expectation can start to move um, to where people feel like they should be more involved in their care, um, then these things will work. And, and I think also that, that the members themselves have to, we have to align our incentives with them so that they feel like that we're all in this together and that we're all gonna benefit, not just the plan. I mean, before it always felt like, look, we're gonna do all this so that the plan can save money so that the insurance company can make money. But if it's that we're trying to change healthcare and our incentives are aligned, that's the way we're gonna get true buy-in. Nope, agreed and, and appreciate it all. Miles, I think we're done other than, <laughs> If there's somebody out there with a whole lot of money that bought Lavongo that wants to buy a brokerage, I think there's a discussion potentially out there. So, but outside of that, um, Miles, what else we got? No, I think that was great. It was great talking with all of you, some great insights on that. And I think, you know, 2021 and is going to be a, a great year and we're, we're excited to see a lot of these changes get implemented and excited to see how they uh, unfold, if you will. So we appreciate all of you for your time and thanks for your insights. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you.